in five years time or in 10 years time, you won't be perceived in the same way just because of how patriarchy works, you know, or if you get married, you won't be seen in the same way. Or if you have children, you won't be seen in the same way. You'll be suddenly seen as you've taken some goods off the table and therefore your music, which isn't linked to any of that, will be seen as less commercial or less valuable. So, I mean, that was one thing I really noticed about me being in music and how I was sort of talked about, you know, it's like there was some kind of girl. I wasn't a kind of grown up woman because I wasn't showing this sexual side of myself wasn't part of the package that I was selling. And that really confused people, I think. That was Corinne Bailey Ray. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, She Rose Radio. She Rose is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. The award-winning British artist Corinne Bailey Ray first came to international acclaim with her 2006 self-titled debut album and especially the song Put Your Records On. The album was massive. It debuted at number one in the UK and Corinne Bailey Ray became the fourth female British act in her story to have her first album debut at number one. The album also went top 10 in the US on the Billboard chart and spent 71 weeks in the chart from 2006 to 2008. According to Nielsen SoundScan, the album sold 1.9 million copies in the United States alone. In 2007, Corinne scored three Grammy nominations, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, both for Put Your Records On, and Best New Artist. She was also nominated for three Brit Awards and won two MOBO Awards. Then personal tragedy struck in 2008 when her husband suddenly died of an accidental overdose. Corinne Bailey Ray took a hiatus from music and her next album, The Sea, featured songs written before and after his death and was nominated for the Mercury Prize in 2010. Next came The Heart Speaks and Whispers in 2016, which debuted at the top of Billboard's R&B chart and landed on many critics' year-end best-of lists. The other side of repeated success is industry expectations and sometimes even self-doubt about one's ability to live up to previous work and achievements. Corinne Bailey Ray found her way to breaking free of all of that when she discovered the work of artist Theaster Gates and the Stony Island Arts Bank in Chicago. What began as something she was calling an art project became Corinne Bailey Ray's newest chapter, the critically hailed Black Rainbows, her fourth album and first in seven years, and expanding her musical and artistic universe to encompass music for contemporary dance, a book, live performances, visuals, lectures, and exhibitions. And most importantly, following her muse and shedding preconceived notions of her creativity has led Corinne Bailey Ray to a transformative moment of reframing how she sees herself as an artist. I think Pitchfork said it best. It sounds like a departure, but feels like a renaissance. I'm thrilled to welcome Corinne Bailey Ray as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. 
Corinne Bailey Ray. Welcome to Shiro's. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations on Black Rainbows. Any reflections thus far on the reception of the album or the album itself? I still feel like I'm in the really early stages where I don't have much time to catch my breath. But I think my main reflections are that there was such excitement for me and trepidation in starting our US tour because we were touring before the record actually came out. So I was able to see the difference between playing to crowds who had never heard the album. And then later on in the tour, I'd start to tell a story and I'd see people react and think, oh, they know which song I'm talking about. You know, they've been able to hear it. But yeah, we started touring in this really old school way where nobody had heard the record and the tour was just the album. It was just Black Rainbows. So it was a real challenge. And now, how do I feel a month later? I feel really pleased with, um, you know, I never read reviews, but my team was saying, oh, there's some good reviews. And then, you know, I think the only feedback I've got is face to face with people in the audience, getting to talk to people after the show, and then really, you know, getting to talk to um, people like yourself, you know, being interviewed about the album. I guess anyone who has ended up coming to talk to me they're having a you know a good response to it so I still feel nervous because it feels like the beginning but my main focus is always touring you know playing the songs I feel like that's the best way to bed them in and to get used to a project and to see how people are responding to it. And not only has it been seven years between The Heart Speaks and Whispers and Black Rainbows, but I understand that the project itself was in process for Was it like all of that time or most of that time? I think it was all of the time, really. Between the Heart Speaks and Whispers and this project, you know, I was on tour with the Heart Speaks and Whispers when I first encountered the Stony Island Arts Bank. And I think it took me a while to realize that I was making a record. First of all, I thought it was going to be some poems. And then I thought, oh, maybe it's a few songs, maybe it's an EP. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. In the end, I started 20 songs about the Arts Bank and the objects, the events that were happening in the building. So it kind of really slowly grew and I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then, of course, I thought of it as a side project as well. So it was always separate to what I thought was my main I guess my main sort of public facing music identity, you know, I sort of thought people are not really going to get this. It's not really like anything I've done before. I kept calling it an art project and I said, oh, it's not going to have my name on it, which actually gave me loads of freedom in making the record. But yeah, that was the process for me thinking, what am I doing? What's it going to be like, you know, rather than having it be so directional thinking, here's my album, like, let's get down to business. For those that don't live in the music world, we might not fully understand that there are pressures that come with having an established career and that especially when you are massively successful as you were with your albums and kind of setting a template. It's a beautiful thing, but at the same time, it can really, I've heard from artists, stifle your creativity or create some challenges on the way to your creativity because you're not as free. And I could see how this idea of shedding that persona and giving yourself permission and the freedom to really play and explore opened so many doors for you. It really did. It made it feel like starting again in a way. You know, I thought 
no one's going to have any expectations of this. And most importantly for me, I removed all my own expectations. I think when I'd made my previous record, I was thinking like the people I have partnered with in business, you know, so in a way I wasn't thinking like an artist anymore. I kept writing songs and I kept playing them to people hoping this was the one they were going to get really excited about. And they would say, oh, well, they say, yeah, it's, it's a really nice song. It's beautiful. But, you know, it's not the first single. There was always talk about that, you know, is it the first single? And, you know, I think the longer you stay away as an artist, the more important it is to have a single that sort of kicks the doors in. And I think then, of course, it becomes a bit of a vicious circle because the longer you're waiting before you've got that magic song, the longer it's been and the more... And there's a feeling like that song has to do more work. So I think I got into a series of um, back and forths with people where I'd play music that they'd say, oh, it's beautiful, but it's not the right thing. Oh, it's beautiful. It's not a radio song. And then I just sort of think like, oh, what's a radio song? So then for myself, I would get to the point where I wouldn't play them a song or worse than that, I wouldn't even finish a song. I'd think this song's too weird, this song's too long, this song's too slow, this song's not about something that's universal enough, this song doesn't sound enough like what I've done before. And so I felt like I'd become my own gatekeeper, you know, that was really getting in the way of my creativity. So with this project, I thought, I don't have to think about any of that. I'm just going to make this music. It doesn't matter how long it is. It doesn't matter about the subjects. It doesn't matter how it sounds, the style, whether it's got tons of lyrics or hardly any. It's, you know, in my head, I kept saying it's an art project. And because I thought of it as art and because I was hanging around with all these amazing visual artists who were filmmakers and sculptors and painters and ceramicists and documentary makers. And I saw them following their own muses and obsessions. You know, one person was researching the black Madonnas of Europe and flying all around, you know, to Sicily or she was going to Ethiopia or she was going to Spain and this was her obsession and then she was writing an opera and but nobody was asking her to do it. She just was driven and I thought I could see the fire in people and I thought I really relate to that, that thing where it's the last thing you think about when you go to bed and it's the first thing you think about when you wake up and that's how the Stony Island Arts Bank became for me that these archives, they were really on my mind and I thought, you know, who is that person in that photograph or what became of this person or who made that black doll and who was it used by? How old is it? All all the things, you know, all the questions, they really bounced around my head. So that freedom in being able to make it into music and not think, is it a radio song? That was so valuable to me on this album. It's so apparent. And I love to see the critical response to it, too. Like the irony is that in stretching those boundaries, in rejecting the confines of what the industry would tell you you need to do or is the right thing to do, I think the result speaks for itself, right? It's like, The accolades are piling up. People are super excited. You know, people are looking at it as kind of like this renaissance. And as you said, almost a new beginning. And it feels like when you look back at your history, going back to the band that you, the indie band that you had, Helen, I feel like you're also giving yourself permission to incorporate all the selves, all the sides of you in this way. So even the title Black Rainbows, I saw that. And once I dove into the material and came to understand a little bit more about it, I thought, well, it's also like so beautiful that the rainbow, the spectrum is also, you know, relative to the spectrum of you as an artist. Absolutely. That's really how I felt. I thought 
I wanted to be able to show all the parts and I felt, you know, the material, the, the objects, the, the research, it really sparked a particular response in every situation. So I didn't have to think about it. You know, if I was dealing with something, the subject matter, which was heavy and problematic and difficult, you know, in, in the Ed Williams collection, the erasure of black childhood or the erasure of black women's femininity or, you know, that demanded a particular kind of response musically that, you know, I knew that was never going to come out as a sort of R&B soul jam. You know, the, <laughs> the feelings that it made were more troubled than that and they needed more aggression than that. And I really enjoy being able to show that side of me as well. You know, I, I often said to people about my tours, I said, whenever I come off stage, my face is always hurting from smiling. Like I'm smiling so much because so much of the music is very positive. It's really sort of open hearted and loving, which I love, you know, that's really, that's me. That's how I want to be. And I want to connect. And then I'll speak to people afterwards and hear their stories. Like, oh, we had this on when we got married. We had this on when we gave birth. And then it'd be just more smiling. And then when I get back to my dressing room or go to sleep at night, I have to kind of massage my cheeks back down because there's so much smiling. But I also really miss that punk thing of the kind of edge and the snarl and the kind of little bit of a kind of bravado or distance. Like I enjoy that as well. I really enjoyed that energy on stage. And I really rem remember that from performing. And so having just done these US dates, you know, it's 22 shows. I really felt like a whole person, a real person, because I'm able to do, you know, something elegiac and ballad and kind of be off in a trance world. And then I'm able to do something really playful and fun with hand clapping. And then we're able to do something psychedelic and then more cosmic stuff or soulful stuff. And and I just think I, it feels like having it all, you know, it, it really, in terms of how I feel creatively in my life right now, you know, that tour I just did, I'm playing this new record that I love. I'm playing in spaces that really understand the record. I'm often in art spaces, you know, black performing arts centers or black colleges even, or the centers where some of these stories happened. And I'm getting to be there, you know, at this time, with, you know, and traveling with my young children as well. I really feel in terms of a having it all moment, it really feels like that to me. So I, I'm just, I'm thrilled with the reception of it. And also in what the freedom has sort of just given me in terms of being able to experience myself. We have Corinne Bailey Ray with us. The new album is Black Rainbows. Where would you like to start today musically? You mentioned Erasure. I don't know if that's a good place for us to begin. Yeah. Gonna... This song Erasure was inspired by the Ed Williams collection in the Stony Island Arts Bank. There was this black and Chinese banker called Ed Williams who would go to flea markets and yard sales and see these problematic objects from America's past, maybe newspaper articles, um, leaflets and pamphlets, photographs, adverts, and then objects for the home, derogatory objects, you know, they've been dubbed negrobelia, the cookie jars shaped like black mammies or the cartoon things, grotesque things, images from racial violence, lynchings. He would see these things for sale and look at the other people who were potentially wanting to buy them and think, let me buy these things. Let me put them in a box in my home. Let me take them out of circulation. You know, these objects, they're historic, but they have still a harm in them to some extent. So he just put them in all these boxes in his house. And then once he had 16,000 of these objects, you know, it was kind of too much for him to live around and for his children. So he donated them to the bank through Theaster Gates. And the bank really has 
a question of how to show them, you know, that it's not like going to a museum where they're all just laid out. And when you do occasionally see them laid out, if they're archiving them, you know, getting all the numbers and writing the details, it's a lot to see in one go. It's a heavy load of, I guess, anti-black propaganda. And you realize the effect of this on everyday people, you know, black and white over 150 years, it's so pervasive and has informed so much thinking about black people. And so when I was encountering it, I just saw these same themes over and over, you know, the erasure of black childhood, black children being shown as criminals or not innocent or not to be protected, you know, laborers, the erasure of black femininity, that black women being shown as grotesque, either sort of hypersexualized or domestic objects, you know, a black woman being compared to a fridge or a cooker. And then, you know, these images mostly of men in victims of racial violence, you know, these photographs that were taken at Lynch's that then became postcards and encountering those postcards and thinking how many people have to say yes for an image like that to become a postcard. You know, you have to have the photographer, you have to have the printer, you have to have the person who decides to stock it in their store. You know, they have to have the person who goes to buy it. In every case, there's no sense that this is improper or something to be ashamed of. And then you have someone who wants to write that postcard. Then you have to have the person who delivers it and the person who receives it. There's so many yes moments in the chain. So that really made me think about, I guess, the widespread nature of this thinking. Like sometimes we can be in a system of thinking that's so normal to us that we don't recognize it as wrong. It's just how it is. And I'd be really intrigued by the writing on the back of these postcards. You know, I'd turn them over and think, what am I about to encounter? This super racist person is going to be, you know, is this going to be a sort of anti-black diatribe on the back? And the postcards would say things like, dear mum and dad, I've just arrived in Georgia. I could smell the peach trees through the train window. Please kiss, you know, auntie so-and-so for me and pet the dog. I'll see you soon. You know, they were so normal, caring, loving there was such a disconnect between what was on the front of the postcard and what was on the back. And so, yeah, I thought a lot about the subject of erasure and, and what happens when you don't, we don't see each other as people. And that came into this song, Erasure. Track three on Black Rainbows, Erasure, and Corinne Bailey Ray is here with us on Shiro's. This is her fourth album and her first in seven years. I realized, too, looking at the Stony Island Bank Art Center, that this is its centennial. Yes, that's right. This year. The bank itself is 100 years old this year, and it started off as a savings and loans bank. The South Side has changed so much in those 100 years. So it was a mostly white area in 1923 when it was made. It's made in a sort of gothic style, you know, it has these huge columns, Romanesque columns, and that was a thriving white area. And then through the changes that happened in many American cities, 
the black middle-class families moved in, the white middle-class families moved out. And then for a while, it was a thriving middle-class area. And then over the years, the South Side has become, I guess, an area where there has been a lack of investment in all the different ways, schools, social, housing. I guess it's an underserved community right now. That's how it would be described. There are huge problems in that area in terms of housing, mental health, poverty. And so the bank fell out of use. There was no longer any need for people to save their money, which I think says so much about the economic state of the neighborhood. You know, the bank collapsed. It wasn't being used, but it was always there as this iconic building on Stony Island where so many of the buildings, you know, Chicago's known for its architecture. So many of the buildings have been pulled down. And Fiesta Gates, who is a visual artist, he saw the bank, he knew of the bank, and he knew the city was about to pull it down. And he bought the bank for a dollar and raised $4 million through selling his own art to save the bank. And instead of being full of money now, it's full of archive and art and a place for people to commune. It's so amazing, too, that your work now has intersected with the work of Theaster Gates. I love the story. You kind of stumbled on this in a way, right? It's pretty remarkable how these things end up having ripple effects when you tune in to those moments and welcome them in. Step through the door, literally. Absolutely. You know? And it's amazing to me that you can have so many chance encounters. I mean, I always feel that with any kind of relationship in your life, whether it's a friendship or someone who becomes a mentor or a romantic partner, you think, what are the chances of, I always think, I don't know if I'm a pessimistic in that way, but I think what an amazing thing that we met. And then my fearful side says, gosh, wouldn't it have been terrible if we had never met, you know, like if our eyes had not met over a crowded room or however it right. becomes with the people that change your life. But certainly I saw this photograph of Theasta Gates on a friend's Pinterest board, she kind of used her Pinterest like a magazine, you know, in the, I don't know what we call that decade, you know, the sort of 2000 teens. She had this board called Artists and Their Workspaces. So I would look at it and sometimes it would be Picasso painting with his light pen in his studio or Kara Walker with her silhouettes. And I saw this photograph of this man, this black man staring out of the frame with this real kind of self-possession and peaceful confidence and then in the background you know it's a photograph from white cube was all this very weird contemporary art which i just didn't understand you know piles of bricks and a weird goat on spindly legs going around a circular train track and he had a picture of harold's chicken shop where a chef is chasing after a chicken with a meat cleaver but i just thought who is this man who is this black man in contemporary art that's not doing figurative art, right? It's not paintings of people. It's stuff. It's some fire hoses flattened out and put on a wall or it's ceramics. But they're talking about the mixture of Japan and Africa. Like I just wanted to know who he was. And then I found out that also part of his practice is saving these buildings from disrepair and bringing them back into the community for art and people to come together and I really liked that, you know, I always like when people make something and then turn it around and use the heat that they're getting, you know, to be able to put back into the rest of the world, you know, into the community. And so I was desperate to see the building. When I flew into Chicago for the show, I told someone, oh, I really wish I'd mentioned it earlier, but I really want to meet this artist. And then I was very lucky. My manager at the time tracked the Asta down and he came to the show. And then from then on, we just got on like a house on fire. And, you know, he took me to the building and to all the buildings, all the different rebuild spaces. And I'd see carpentry workshops, um, 
metal workshops and then, you know, his own studio with like Leslie speakers and printing presses that he'd collected from all over the world. And it's just the scale of it really kind of blows my mind and all his ceramic workshops. And then, you know, I got to see his exhibition in Basel. I went to Paris, you know, I went to see his work in Los Angeles. And so, yeah, he's become such an important mentor to me. You know, I'm so glad I met him and have been able to encounter the arts bank, but also to be around someone who it feels like there's no limits to their creativity. You know, it's all different mediums. It's different times. It's different collaborations with people and it's all valid, but it's all tied together with such clear thoughts. And it, it's been a challenge to me to think, you know, what could I do? What could I make? Why mm -hmm. am I thinking of myself as kind of a failed pop star instead of thinking of myself as an artist and someone who can use music and someone who has a unique talent? Why am I thinking, oh, I'm not quite doing what I should be doing or I'm not doing as well as this person or that person? Why am I not using my moment and my ability to really say what I want to say? So that was the main thing with this record of like, what are you doing with your life and what you're doing with your creativity and why not as well you know which I saw with him and the other artists that he introduced me to it's like they're doing what they want to do why aren't I doing what I want to do when I left my job at public radio the main thing that I said to people who asked why was that I had the power of the microphone, but not the freedom to use my voice. Yes. And that I wanted to give myself that freedom. Yes. <laughs> and give it to others, you know, and like my work quickly became something mission based. Yes. Which I'm hearing in you, you know, that like you gave yourself that freedom. Now you're using the microphone for purpose as well as for entertainment and art, you know, art for art's sake. And also, I just want to acknowledge that you are not only stretching your musical boundaries, but also the expression of what this project is. It's taking many forms and already has. You want to talk to us a little bit about the extension of Black Rainbows into kind of a multidisciplinary project? Yes, I felt like these stories were too big to be contained in just the songs. You know, so early on in the year at Easter time, I worked with this really brilliant choreographer in Leeds where I live. She's called Sharon Watson. She's about 10 years older than me, a black woman who she's really a leader in her field in the UK. You know, she does really, how can I describe her choreography? It's almost as though she uses the dancers not just like clay, it's not just her hands shaping them, but she's very collaborative. I did this dance piece with her, it's called Siege Dreams and Constellations, and it was a lot of the music which became Black Rainbows. But I would see her do things like give them a map of a constellation and then say to them, okay, you've got Orion, okay, I want you to dance Orion for me. She'd say, the nodes are improvisational. She'd say, everyone's included, there's no leader. She would talk about vectors and she would talk about direction and then she'd just say, okay. And they would just go off. So to me, they were so conceptual. You know, I, again, I'd never been around dance before. I thought it was going to be just five, six, seven, eight, you know, arm to the left. I guess with so many of these art forms, if you see only the very popular version of it, you think of, you know, dance, like street dance, but seeing contemporary dance and she would use your outsider feeling to get into 
the thought space of this particular song. She's like, of course, not all of us have been enslaved people or have enslaved ancestors, but some of you are from a different country and you've come to this country. How's your reception been? How do you feel being away from home? What are those displaced feelings? Bring that to the dance. You know, she said, how many have been looked over and disregarded? How many of you have that in your story? Use that in this moment. Or, you know, she'd see what they were doing and say, I see you want to go big with this. I want you to go even bigger. So she had this dance piece and then, you know, we worked together, Siege Dreams Constellations. It was three nights, 40 dancers. And we played some live music as well, where we improvised and they improvised. So there was this dance piece. And then we've made this book. I really wanted people to see what the Arts Bank looks like, you know, to see what it's like to see 26,000 books in this double height, you know, building on these huge wooden shelves. I've said to a lot of people, I've been around, you know, maybe black libraries or black literature a little bit before and they would be maybe a corner of a bigger space or they would maybe be in the same context as there's one in Leeds. It's the same place you pick up your check from the government if you're you know, struggling or it's the same place that you might go to have a health checkup or the same place that you might go to drop your kids off so you can work, you know, like a daycare, pharmacy. But the Arts Bank feels like this kind of hallowed library space, you know, where you sit at the table that's by a 1970s artist that was collected by John Johnson. And, you know, there's a the big glass sculpture next to you and you take out the white gloves and you hold this book and everything is elevated. I hadn't been in a black library like that before. And of course, with, you know, the 26,000 books, it's so much, there's so much volume of information about those subjects. So we wanted to make a book. So I wanted to take those photos. The photographer is Koto Belofo, who is a South African photographer who I've loved. He's worked in fashion a lot. And then he's recently moved more into sort of archive and still life. But he's a really good and joyous fashion photographer. His photos of women I really love. There's a kind of girlish abandon to a lot of his photos, you know, like women doing cartwheels and, you know, like big smiles. It's a lot of outdoors, hair being blown by the wind, you know, but it's really beautiful or like someone lying on a horse. It's just really gorgeous. And I've always wanted to work with him. So having him involved was good as well because he has all his perceptions about race. You know, South Africa is its own planet in terms of the construction of race. You know, I have a white parent and a black parent. So in South Africa, I wouldn't have been considered black or white. I would have been a whole separate race called coloured I wouldn't have been able to spend time with my black family in public or my white family in public I wouldn't have been able to live in the same area as them so I mean I think when you're from a place that has these constructs of race and then you come up somewhere else it's so easy to see how made up the rules were in that place and then of course he came to Europe and he works in America and he gets to see what European racism looks like or what American racism looks like. They're all made up things. Of course, they have a real effect, but they're not real in themselves in terms of being rules or biology. Or So I really wanted to work with him and he did some really beautiful photos in the Arts Bank. And then we've done some talks. I got to talk with Professor Daphne Brooks at Yale University, who's a big music writer and, you know, historian, literature professor and you know she's a black woman it's but it's amazing to be able to talk to her about you know the science fi fiction writer the black science fiction writer octavia butler and in nearly the same sentence be able to talk about hole's album live through this and how much she loved that you know I, I feel like i never really get to talk about both those things in the same context so it was great talking to daphne brooks or you know we're at spellman we're going to fisk we're going to columbia so it's just been a joy to be invited into those spaces you know we're at this black artist retreat in chicago and being around all these 
filmmakers, poets, archivists, you know, curators who were doing so much in the world and feel like I had a space, you know, feel like I was appreciated. That was really, really great to me. The other thing that's great on this album and in this project is to get to see you in all of these different contexts. And you were co-producer on this album, which is so important, especially as a woman and as a black woman to be recognized in that way. And I was like looking at the credits. I mean, you play everything. <sighs> you play. I mean, obviously you're a guitarist. You play bass, you play percussion. There's a bass drum here that you play. I have not had the opportunity to I have to say, dive too deep into the credits of your other records. Yeah. So I don't know how much of this is new territory for you other than the guitar. But I also was thinking like, just because of being in the Shiro's lane, like I, I want to recognize that and I want others to also like celebrate the incredible breadth of musical knowledge that you bring to this project. It's wild. Oh, thank you. I mean, I really love making music. And that's what I found when I was maybe towards the end of my label. It was hard for them to understand, like, I'd rather I want to do it myself. And that means it's going to take longer. It's going to be weirder. And it might not yeah. be right in the sense that it, it might be bumpy technically or it might just not fit in with the other stuff around. But to me, that's the whole fun, like getting to bang the drums or getting to, you know, work something out on a synth or getting to do the percussion or all the vocal layers. And I really felt with this album because I thought of it as a side project. I thought, oh, I'm just going to play. So, you know, I would put my headphones on and I would just do layers and layers of vocals and I wouldn't listen back to them. I wouldn't think, oh, is this correct or not? I'd just fire out the harmonies and then I would kind of unsolo them all and see what they sounded like. Or, or I'd think, oh, I want this to sound like a bunch of weird ghosts sort of rushing in. Like to me, weirdness is really important. And I've always felt like an outsider in all these different ways. You know, my parents were divorced, but we mostly grew up around people who, you know, their parents were married and I had a black parent and a white parent and that wasn't that common where we lived in Leeds. You know, there wasn't that many black kids at my school. And then to also be, you know, someone who had a black parent and a white parent. We were a working class, but in a middle class area. So my parents had been able, they'd bought a flat and that flat had gone up massively in price. And that meant that we could buy this house in this kind of fancy area, but nothing else about our income stream match that so you know everyone had a car we didn't really have a car or everyone had the holidays and all that so I felt different in that way I felt different because I was really underweight I was really skinny when I was a kid so to the point where people would sort of pull me aside at school like a teacher are you okay do you eat properly said, yeah I'm just this is just me and I felt outsider because I played the violin and that was kind of uncool I liked school I did well at school that was also not very cool I rode to school on my bicycle you know, so you can imagine, you know, like mixed race girl, really skinny, hockey kit balanced on one handle, you know, violin balanced on the other handle, just like cycling in, excited for chess club. You know, I felt like a, a weirdo. But then in the 90s, grunge music came along and suddenly there was a place for the outsiders and the weirdos. And I just ran towards it, you know. I remember one year at school, I always hated September because September was when you needed to have new school shoes and a new school bag. And I knew that I wouldn't mm. be able to have the fancy trainers or the right bag. So I'd always get teased a bit that first week because 
you know, your trainer said Nick instead of Nike or your bag was like cheap and everyone else's was expensive. And But I remember the year that sort of grunge came around where I could wear Doc Martens because they weren't expensive, Dr. Martin shoes. And I remember my bag was a green bag from the Army and Navy store. It just cost a few pounds. But to me, it was the coolest thing ever because it was like a bag that Kurt Cobain would have. And the shoes were like, the shoes that I'd seen on, I don't know, Pearl Jam or Courtney Love. So I just felt so good. And I remember the same people teasing me, but I sort of thought, oh, you don't get it. This is really cool. What I'm wearing is really cool. You just don't understand it. I remember this wooden girl sort of whispered, I don't like her in shoes. And I remember thinking, I love these 12 hole Dr. Martins, you know? So grunge music and the culture, it made me feel like the concept of outsider is relative. You know, at school, I was like nerdy. I had friends, but I was, you know, like just worked hard at school. I really love school. But then in the indie scene, I was sort of like queen of this culture. You know, I got to be like, I was a singer in my band. And so I was kind of facing these other like alpha girls in their bands. And and it was so relative, you know, like I remember the night my band won a competition, you know, Battle of the Bands, Bright Young Things, whatever it was called, 1997. And then going into school and saying like, sir, you know, telling the teacher, sir, my band won that competition last night. And I remember him saying, okay, Corinne, just go and get the register. You know, because that was my job to go to the register. And I remember thinking, yeah, this is fine. Like at school, I'm the girl who gets the register. And in Joseph's well last night, I was, you know, a god for two hours, you know. And it, I remember thinking, I like this shift. And I never believed I was one thing or another. I was like, I'm still myself. It's just how people perceive me. But yeah, the thing of being able to be weird and play and sort of get it wrong and make mistakes and do it yourself and the labor that that is and the way it takes longer that is what I really like about making music. And I've never felt comfortable with the different label suggestions of like, you know, this producer is so hot right now. You know, everything he touches turns to gold and you should just go, you know, he's so hot right now. <laughs> you know, say so I'd go to these sessions and the guy would be, it's always a guy. They'd it's be always like, a guy. I was just going to say it's, it's always, always a guy. Of and I had yeah. a, worked with a particular guy who I won't say, but someone who was so hot at that exact moment and he was like hey yeah okay so and he you know we must have spent about 40 minutes in the room with me sort of bashed out some chords and then he was like okay if you need any help here's you know chuck my engineer i'm just going in this other room in the studio to work this other artist and then i'm going down the hall to work with this other artist and i was just like yeah this doesn't feel like how i do things but it's fine because this guy's massive and he's had all these hits so and then I'd be just trying to kind of milk a song out of myself. And then obviously it wasn't coming because I don't know, I maybe don't work well in that kind of environment. And then you just leave with this massive sense of failure, like, oh, it must be me because this guy's like massive. Everything he does turns to gold. You know, I'm the only person this year that's worked with this artist and not had a hit, you know. So I think all of those things, it wasn't that useful for me, but it, and it also wasn't that fun. You know, it just wasn't fun to do that. But that's how a lot of people make stuff happen. They go in there super ambitious with their notepad and they fire the lyrics down over the, a track and it's like a massive smash. And yeah, that's just not the way I like to work. I really like to be involved in all of it. it. It's fun. It is fun to me. The making part of it is fun. I'm not just trying to create content as a vehicle for my persona, you know, like some artists, they really want to just keep that content coming, you know, and it's helps them get their social media figures up. And then they're more likely to then get their, you know, massive um, Chanel campaign or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, that is not my dream, you know. 
I think this might be a great place for us to play a clip of New York Transit Queen. Good idea. New York Transit Queen, New York Transit Queen, New York Transit Queen, little over 17. Transit Queen from Black Rainbow's fourth album for Corinne Bailey Ray, her first in seven years. She's here with us on Shiro's and I'm Carmel Holt. I think I not very elegantly talked to you about how impressed I was with all of the instruments that you played on the record oh, and, and being co-producer of this project as well. And I loved getting to learn about your Riot Girl influences and your background. And it's kind of amazing that this side of you hasn't really been something that we've gotten to know before. Full circled back to the beginning of the conversation where I said Black Rainbows speaking to your multidimensional nature as an artist. And because we're in the Shiro zone, I was hoping that we could spend a little bit of time talking about some of this stuff in that frame, in that framework of being, I'm going to put this in air quotes, a woman in music. Yeah. One of the most reviled phrases that we hear all too often. However, I don't have any other language to say what that is. So I guess maybe a very broad question would be, what can you tell us or share with us about even some of the things that we've talked about so far today? Put in that framework. Do you have anything to share that you can shed light on about your experience coming through your career and up to this point that may have related to being a woman and that may have swayed your experiences one way or the other, like challenges that you came up against, any sexism that you've come up against and how you've handled that. I think it's always difficult to talk about the thing of being a woman because of course you have never been anything else. So I only know this version of me, but I think that in terms of being able to walk into an industry with a sense of power and self, I think that really came from having been in a band, a totally independent indie band, you know, to the extent when literally only 90 people have ever heard of us, 90 loyal fans, you know, so I think Coming from that background where, you know, you had to book your own gigs, you had to make your own posters, you had to carry your own instruments into town in a taxi or a bus and pack up afterwards by yourself and know how stuff worked and, you know, win the recording time and run it as the producers, I guess, say, you know, we want to do these three songs, we want to do this first, we want this to sound like this. And I felt going in to make my first record that I had a little bit of space, you know, as a woman and a little bit of sense of independence. And we made my first album independently. I made it with this producer called Steve Chrysanthou, who I'd met through my manager at the time. And we made it underneath this art shop. His wife was a wildlife painter. So she'd be upstairs doing tigers and we'd be downstairs doing, you know, put your records on or butterfly or something. And then, you know, she'd kind of pop down and listen and had lots of cups of tea, but there wasn't a massive pressure around that record. And then when it was finished, we were able to go in and, you know, sort of shop it around, see if anyone liked it. I felt like because of that, I feel like I arrived with a certain amount of strength. You know, I think it it would be different going in saying, hi, I'm a singer, songwriter, you know, kind of 
put stuff around me. I felt like because I'd worked in this jazz club, I'd already made all these friends. So I could say, oh yeah, this is the band that's going to play on it. And I'd made the record. So it's, you know, me and the producer have made this music. I'm the songwriter. So, you know, I don't need to be kind of wheeled around all these different people. That gave me a strength. And I think that really set a precedent for my work going forwards. I also think in terms of being a woman, that my presentation really helped in the sense that if you're a really young woman and you're really conventionally attractive, like in a sexy way, how women are marketed, you know, so if you're really beautiful and you have, you know, some big boobies and you like to wear makeup and you're really happy to wear clothes that show more of your body, I feel like there's a more of an opportunity in that respect to kind of market you in a particular way. And I see it happen with lots of young women. I feel like because I didn't fit that role, which of course wasn't anything to do with my own choice. It was just the way that I ended up. That's my body type and my look. You know, I think I don't have big boobies. I am a black person and this was in the early 2000s. So there wasn't that same pressure, I think, as if you were either a really good looking black rapper or hip hop star or really good looking white pop artist, you know, that I think the ways in which people might think to market you if you were someone who had a banging body and like a really commercial look is different than me yeah. sort of turning up like I'm riding a bike in a kind of a vest with my hair in curls. And, you know, I, I felt like as hard as they might have tried, the way that I looked couldn't be pushed down that avenue and because of how I looked I wasn't ever used to being you know marketed in that way I remember after the record took off one of my the people at the label who was a woman she said to me kind of laughingly she said oh we've been asked if there's any FHM style photos of you and FHM was uh, for him magazine you know it's in the UK it was kind of sexy pictures so it's like are there any pictures of you you know lying back in a bikini or like you know licking your lips and all that sort of stuff and she thought it was hilarious because she knew, of course, there weren't any pictures like that of me, mainly because I didn't want to do them, but also because I'd never been asked to do them because my body type didn't fit into that, what was thought of sexy. I think that leads to two things, you know, speaking as a woman, I think you can be kind of infantilized where people, if you're not selling sex as part of what you do, people can think of you as more girlish and what happened in the British press for me my music came out around the same time as Amy Winehouse and Lily Allen is that I was always sort of compared to them and thought of as kind of somehow innocent you know butter wouldn't melt in her mouth and because my music wasn't really it didn't have this big sex context to it the way the British press kind of received me was that I was somehow vanilla that I was kind of almost childlike that I didn't know the sexy rock and roll heart of music not like Amy stumbling out of bars and you know it was a time of upskirting where people would take photographs of people's clothes and or not like Lily Allen because she would swear or she would talk about you know sexual encounters and it was weird because it was almost like okay you can be a woman in music but you have to give us what we want which is that we want to see your boobs pushed up in a bra we want to hear you talking about this one night stand that you had. We want to hear you talking about sex in your music. 
we want to feel like we've got a chance, you know, like from a sort of male journalist point of view, we want to feel like in order for us to say, oh, I would, you have to kind of put out in terms of the content. And I was really aware that I wasn't putting out in the content. I think that that, that did some things for me. What it most usefully did for me is that sexy time has never really been a big part of my music, which in the world of patriarchy is a blessing because now I get to be a 44-year-old woman and I'm not having, you know, the male gaze turn from me. Oh, she's this now. She's that now. She's not as, I don't know, sexually desirable as when she was 25 years old, like has been the thing for so many women. And I was thinking, if you play that game, you know, when you're a young artist, there's always someone who's like more good looking than you, who's willing to wear smaller clothes than you, less clothes than you, and wants to talk about more sexy stuff that they've done than you, or wants to do this move in their video, or have these guys hang out in the video and make it seem like they're just very sexually active and busy with lots of partners. And that's for the male heterosexual gaze, you know, it's like, Ooh, that, you know, maybe to make people think, Oh, maybe I've got a chance with this artist or they arouse me, their music turns me on. You know, I think of course that's a game to play. And of course, so many women say, well, I'm just using it to my own advantage because, you know, I want to be in people's faces. I want to get my music heard. I mean, you can do that, but you, in, in five years' time or in 10 years' time, you won't be perceived in the same way just because of how patriarchy works, you know. Or if you get married, you won't be seen in the same way. Or if you have children, you won't be seen in the same way. You'll be suddenly seen as you've taken some goods off the table and therefore your music, which isn't linked to any of that, will be seen as less commercial or less valuable. So, I mean, that was one thing I really noticed about me being in music and how I was sort of talked about, you know, it's like that I was some kind of girl. I wasn't a kind of grown up woman because I wasn't showing this sexual side of myself wasn't part of the package that I was selling. And that really confused people, I think. And what about now in the context of Black Rainbows? I guess in the context of Black Rainbows, I just feel like I'm being fully myself. And that is, you know, being a 44-year-old woman, that includes everything. It's like, I'm on tour, I'm with my children, I'm literally like breastfeeding one, wiping a bum, getting my dread jumpsuit on and getting on stage. Like, I am under no illusions about the sort of glamour of touring. You know, it's very much like being in a traveling circus. But I feel so integrated because... On that stage, I'm able to bring my girl self and my woman self. I'm able to be there in my aggression and in my joy and in my sexuality. And so it feels really good to have made this space or won this space or given myself these permissions to show all these different parts of me and to have not felt I'd had to correct anyone about their illusions of me, but just to kind of carry on being myself. You know, that feels like the right reward. Kern Bailey Ray here with us on Shiro's. The new album is Black Rainbows. I was thinking perhaps we could play He Will Follow You With His Eyes. I love He Will Follow You With His Eyes. And that really does speak about, I guess, the expectations around women and the male gaze. I was in the arts bank and I opened a drawer and I found this little tin of this product, this sweet Georgia Brown, and saw that it was part of a beauty company called Valmore. And I was able to find adverts for Valmore. Valmore was very popular in the 50s and 60s and it was targeted at black men 
men and women. The line drawings for Valmo were very elegant and they were done by this black artist called Charles Dawson. So it contrasted with other stuff in the Ed Williams. It wasn't cartoonish. It wasn't grotesque. It was beautiful. It was elegant. But of course, the beauty with it being the 50s is very much along sort of white aligned beauty. So the sweet Georgia Brown cream is a skin lightening cream or there'd be hair pressing oil so you can take your hair from afro hair which was undesirable to straight hair which is obviously closer to a white beauty and and these products were sold door to door you know i thought about what it must be like to receive you know a beautician who's selling this and how widely bought valmore was it was marketed in a really romantic way so if you bought a perfume it might be called follow me boy or look me over or if you um if you read print adverts of valmore the title would be his eyes would follow you across the room. Or, you know, there might be a skin lightning advert and it would say, help yourself to happiness. And it would be a picture of a man getting a promotion at work or a woman, you know, getting the guy. And so there was this tie with beauty equals sort of progress in the world. Beauty can take you from your status as a black person. It can raise your status if you're willing to move away from a bit further towards white beauty standards. And so when I wrote this song, I really wanted the first half of the song to be as though the person was very much under the spell of Valmore, you know, dreamy sort of 50s music and strings and vibraphones. And, you know, he will follow with his eyes. That's a promise of the potion I buy. And they're very much under the spell of Valmore. And then halfway through, there's a kind of sonic interruption where the person rejects these values and comes into their own beauty and self-acceptance along their lines of ethnicity and and so I enjoy so much performing this song live because the first part I'm in my Shirley Bassey Eartha kit theatrics and then I get to go into this really solid kind of directed phrase where I'm singing about plum red lipstick and black hair kinking and black skin gleaming then he'll follow you with his eyes Follow you with his eyes on Black Rainbows. We have Corinne Bailey Ray with us on Shiro's. I'm Carmel Holt. All right. The Shiro's magic wand is how we close each episode of the show. And I invite my guests to hold the Shiro's magic wand. And with the first wave of the wand, what would you change in music for women, non-binary folks, queer folks? The first thing that comes to your mind, something that you might want to change. I think I would change the representation. You know, I would love to hear music made where 50% of the music was really made 
by and of and from women and non-binary folks and queer people and trans women and just to hear a wider perspective in music I think it would be so magical and valuable you know there's so many female artists we see and we think oh great I'm getting to hear her and then when you look through the credits you know there's her there's three men on the songs that are all in the 50s. A dude's produced it, you know, that it's gone through the male record label. And I was thinking, like, I want to hear what she thinks. You know, I'd rather almost hear her sing into her phone and play on some pots and pans. But really just like, what is it when it's not? edited? What is it when it's not filtered? What is it when it's not policed? What do you really have to say when you're not thinking, you know, are men going to like this? You know, I really like the idea of that. So that'd be in music. I'd love to just hear more women's stories and women's voices. With thanks to Corinne Bailey Ray. Can you pick a track to take us out with today? I would like to play Earthlings. I really like the idea of someone from another planet looking in at what we do and saying, you know, all you have to do is start again. You know, there's so much possibility for change and transformation personally, but also in how we run the world. I really feel that. Thanks again to Corinne Bailey Ray. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. What a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kamal. Massive thanks to Corinne Bailey Ray for being with us. Black Rainbows is out now on 30 Tigers. Catch her on tour in select cities this February. Shiro's is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit shirosradio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the Shiro's shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>